0: Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gracious opportunity that you have provided for us, that you have planned before time began for us to assemble together in the praise and the magnification of your great name. We thank you for sending us your Son and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, born of woman, the seed of a woman to crush the serpent's head and to purchase our redemption. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we bow before you, our prophet, priest, and king. I pray that our mind and our hearts and our souls would be humbled and submissive to your word this day. I pray that by the power of your spirit that you have left with us the paraclete, the helper, to lead and guide us into all truth, that you would illuminate the truth of the gospel to our feeble minds. I pray in spite of our limitations, the fallenness, Lord Jesus, that we still deal with in part, that our spirit man would resonate with the truth that you have resurrected in us through the saving of our soul by the power of your great name. I pray that sins that so easily beset and cling to us would be washed away through the preaching of your word this day. I pray that souls that are feeble and minds that are weak need would be encouraged and exuberant and equipped for the proclamation of your holy word through lives lived in obedience and faith to a world that is dying in their sin and depravity. I pray, Lord, that as you do this through this service today, an unlikely people in an out-of-the-way place, that you would see fit through the foolishness of preaching with this unlikely band to glorify yourself. That your kingdom may come even among us, and your will may be done even through us, Lord Jesus, to the praise of your great name. And it is in your holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege to open up the Scriptures today, and I'll invite you to do that with me today by turning to two places. The first will be Matthew 24, 36-44. And the second comparative text that we'll be studying in some depth today is 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. Two passages, again, Matthew 24, 36 through 44, and 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the word. Today's message is titled Event Oracle. It's a term that I think I coined, I'm sure it's not original to me, at least the concept is certainly, I believe, scriptural, but I wanted to expand on it a bit. It's simply this idea that the events that God sovereignly orchestrates through the history of redemption serve along the way, not just the moment in which they occurred, but prophetically to speak to God's word on into the future. We will see this concept time and again in just our two texts today, and I think it will be helpful for us to interpret How the Bible conveys information. How the Lord speaks through both events and proposition and His Holy Word so that our hearts might be encouraged in faith. So this morning, if you would stand with me with your Bible open, if it's available to you, to Matthew chapter 24. Let us hear the Holy Word of Christ. Verses 36-44, through we have God's Word declared to us in these words. But concerning that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Turn over with me before you're seated to 2 Peter chapter 2 and follow me as I read verses 4 through 10. The scriptures say For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood upon the, whole, or upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them, day after day he was, uh, for, he was tormenting, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today's message will be a brief excursus. A kind of a sidebar and a little bit of undergirding, hopefully comparative work that would help us to understand the scriptures as they are delivered. The Bible is a unique book. There will never be another like it. We should expect unique ways for the Bible to declare its truth. Too often we short-sightedly analyze the scriptures by comparing them to our experience. Yet anything a mere man does without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is just a bit or a piece or a very faint reflection of a truly amazing, Holy Spirit inspired, miraculously recorded narrative such as we have it in the Bible. The Bible as the word of God will never be equaled, will never be duplicated, will never even have a close competitor. It is absolutely sufficient, inerrant, infallible, unique. And therefore, the more you dig into the scriptures, the more gold of literary literary value there is to discover. You find that its connections are so finely tuned that no mere human could have ever constructed such a thing, especially as you consider that those writing had little idea of what would happen in the future, and those that came after did not have a comprehensive understanding of what happened in the past. Yet the author and finisher of our faith is the author of scripture and so with this in mind as we study the bible we have an exciting task for as many years as the lord graciously gives us in this life because there will always be more to appreciate there will always be more to inspire awe and worship as we dig into the scriptures it's my prayer that the spirit would guide us to some of these treasures today as we open up matthew 24 and second peter 2. Today's message as an excursus from our ordinary format going through rather systematically in Matthew, I hope will reinforce our understanding of biblical eschatology. Eschatology is that word that we employ in theology which means the study of last things or ultimate things or final things. You may be more familiar with the term like last days or uh, the end of time. Those are both ideas that are under that umbrella, uh, idea or concept of eschatology. We'll rewind slightly from uh, over last week's message, overlapping a little bit, to develop a concept I've labeled event oracle by some comparative study. I'll give this definition to you a couple times in the course of this message, but the working definition I'm using for this term event oracle is as follows. Historical circumstances which function as indispensable, decretive knowledge, declared by proxy, divine in origin that might sound a little academic so let me simplify historical circumstances things that have happened in the past events that have been recorded in Scripture they serve to teach they serve to teach the people at the time and they serve to teach people for all time they are essentially the Word of God and in the record of the history of the Old Testament there are a number of these events and they are restated in the new to help us understand, to emphasize, to declare, to illuminate the word of God. In so doing, they are serve as a proxy witness, that is, speaking on behalf of another. We're familiar with this when we have an agent, such as a prophet, Christ himself sent by the Father to speak the word. A person such as that is a herald, one who is commissioned to declare. Well, this concept goes beyond just human agents to events themselves. God commissions certain events in history to declare His truth, to represent His word to His people. And that's partly what we have in view here. And of course, they are divine in origin. That means they are orchestrated. They are sovereignly commissioned from before time even began by God, ordered by His sovereign hand to do exactly that. So with that in view we can see that the Bible affirms and it is true even in our day that all history is by God's authorship this sermon will endeavor to explore the distinctive and unique character of biblical revelation historical redemptive truths and events that have been recorded throughout the course of scriptures we will touch on a few of them today and see especially how these relate to the correspondence of prophecy and history That is God's word and events. He has ordained that even the narrative of past happenings in the Old Testament and into the New reinforce propositional truth. You might be familiar with a concept we've employed in our study of Matthew called narrative imperative continuity. Another fancy term that I think is fun to write down, but it simply means this, that there is a relationship between the works that Jesus did and the word that he spoke. When we see the miracles that he employed, and then we hear his discourses, we find that they reinforce one another. In a similar way, the acts of God in history and his word, they're correlative. They relate to one another. They reinforce one another. This contextual note seems especially important, especially important in understanding or in the task of understanding biblical prophecy. Apostolic illumination is invaluable in this case, that is, how the apostles further record the Word of God, we have our example in Second Peter primarily today, they further reveal the way God moves and speaks in history. The disciples were commissioned, the apostles who wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were commissioned to record the Word of God and in so doing to shed light unto the mysteries of Christ's Word and in many cases to provide a key of interpretation and so I submit to you Second Peter 2 provides something of a key to unlock a part of the meaning of the fifth discourse in Matthew, or the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24 and 25. This will be, therefore, our primary cross-reference for this portion of the Olivet Discourse, that is, looking at math, or 2 Peter 2 to help us understand Matthew 24 this morning. And as we do so, I think we'll see shared context and constructs that serve to illuminate Decode, echo, and emphasize Jesus' message of the kingdom come in Matthew 24. Let me pause here for a moment and give you a little bit of a church history disclosure, if you will. In this passage in Matthew 24 and the parables that follow it, it's probably one of the most debated sections in all of Scripture. When we read just this verse, for instance, verse 36 in Matthew 24, but concerning that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. There is this big preeminent question that has bothered the minds of biblical expositors throughout the ages. Exactly what time is being referred to here? Some have said that all of these events in Matthew 24 and 25 refer to a yet future time, future to us. Others have said that actually both are in view. Some of these events were fulfilled at the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem in A.D. 70, according to Jesus' prophecy, earlier in the chapter. And then the rest of it refers to a time in the future. Others have said, no, it's all in the past. And here's an even more interesting thing that makes it difficult for someone like me to stand up and, sound, and, and you know, make a case with any kind of certainty if you look only at the commentaries. I tend to go through quite a long list of commentaries if I have the time. Under ideal study conditions, I'll touch on Barnes, Calvin, Gill, Henry, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, sometimes Spurgeon, P.E. Hughes. That's not to impress you. It's just to say I need a lot of help and study because I don't have a lot of background and familiarity with the original text. So I rely a lot, or in part at least, on the testimony of multiple witnesses who have carefully gone over Scripture with more tools than I have, and I benefit greatly by double-checking my own thinking going over some who have written on these topics. One thing you'll generally find when you're reading uh, those who have similar commitments is there's a lot of unity on the Scriptures. This should greatly encourage you. That is to say, when you have faithful men who love the Lord, who have a number of things shared in their commitments, you tend to get a lot of continuity in what they write. Those commitments would be, among them, biblical inerrancy. The Bible is the word of God. It's not the word of man merely. It is not you know, full of holes and errors, contradictions and, and problems. No, the Bible is a continuous revelation of God's truth. If we can't understand it, the problem is with us, not with the Scriptures. So that's a shared commitment among good biblical scholars or exegetes. Also, other things like the continuity and the perspicuity of Scripture, that it hangs together as a whole, that it can be understood with the Holy Spirit aiding us with the tools He gives us. Also, the commitment of sound hermeneutics, which just means the Bible interprets itself. So, you kind of stack all these pre-commitments up as a good foundation, and you tend to get a lot of unity when what you then write about the Scriptures. Well, I'll tell you, there is some in some places exceptions to that rule. And Matthew 24 and 25 is one of those. In spite of those shared commitments, there is still quite a wide range of biblical interpretation. So it's with that disclaimer and a little note of caution that I give you my own interpretation today. I hope it is faithful to the essence, but of course it is always subject to the rest of the word. And I would encourage you to be a good Berean and search out for yourself. So a big question when it comes to these texts today is how much of this prophecy is yet future, as I mentioned, versus how much has been fulfilled in the historical destruction of Jerusalem at A.D. 70. Just recalling to your attention little details like this. You you see all these, do you not? Speaking of the temple and its surrounding buildings, truly I tell you, this is 242. there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus goes on, as we've noted in the course of this message, to speak of uh, con- historical conditions that in many cases we find in the record of history mirrored the assault of Jerusalem by Titus in A.D. 70. And yes, indeed, the temple was destroyed and with it the sacrificial system and the old temple order. So with that quite lengthy introduction in view, let us jump into a comparative study this morning. What I would like to do is explore these two texts that we've read today expounding Jesus eschatology noting apostolic parallels let us see what Jesus tells us about the future in light of what the Apostle Peter specifically notes in a parallel text first two main points this morning I submit to you that these two sections of Scripture Matthew 24 36 44 and 2nd Peter 2 4 through 10 they share a context and they share a construct They are, par- they are parallel in context and they're also parallel in construct the way that they're written the way that the uh, information is ordered if you will the means of declaration first of all under shared consta- uh, context let's explore foundational parallels for a moment between the two expounding Jesus eschatology noting apostolic parallels exploring them according to the foundation of these texts. First of all, I want you to note a gospel infrastructure that undergirds both passages. This message, first of all, in Matthew 24 and 25, immediately precedes the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. I've referred to this idea in previous messages, but when we take into account Jesus' work and ministry, note that there is something of an arc If you will, the cross, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus doesn't come until the end of the gospel narrative. Yet all the while he is preaching the kingdom. So if you take the gospel as kind of a unified, summarized whole, you kind of have to take the whole works of Jesus' ministry in summary. So therefore, as we're reading the gospels, it's something of an arc. Uh, He's building toward a climax, if you will. And the message that he's preaching and the miracles that he is working is preparing for, it's declaring the foundation of, the meaning of, and it's, uh, it's acclimating the disciples' hearts and minds, those who have ears to hear, to the reality of redemption that he will soon accomplish. So in the course of these events, as he's preaching the kingdom, they reach their exclamation point, their apex, their climax, and their crescendo at his work on Calvary. And this happens in chapter 26. Jesus is anointed at Bethany. He's betrayed by Judas in verse 14 of that chapter. Then he has his Passover with disciples as the institution of the Lord's Supper, just going through the headings in my Bible here. Jesus prophesies Peter's denial. There's the Gethsemane experience. There is the betrayal and arrest. He stands before Caiaphas. Peter denies him. And then in the next chapter, he's delivered over Pilate. He then goes to the cross, and He accomplishes our redemption. In the book of Matthew, these events are meant to be taken as infrastructure for what He has spoken of before. Therefore, the gospel itself undergirds, by context, our text today. What is an infrastructure? Well, if you just look at the dictionary definition, it's something like a permanent installation, providing underlying foundation or basic framework of a system. And it's so important in interpreting biblical uh, uh, prophecy that the foundation, the emphasis, the thrust, the main idea and that which we are to take away isn't so much how significant is my generation or isn't it amazing the events in the Middle East follow chapter such and such of Revelation, but instead that prophecy reveals Jesus Christ. The gospel is the infrastructure that aids in our understanding of anything in the Bible that speaks to future events. If Christ is not central, we are likely in error. If Christ is not undergird and reinforced, if the events and their meaning in our minds don't make sense in light of Calvary, then we ought to revisit, I submit to you the case. In this sense, the gospel infrastructure of Matthew, Matthew's account seals the ministry of Jesus his work on Calvary that immediately follows taking into account this arc of his ministry is approaching that point of fulfillment and fruition provides the signature event that which helps us to understand what preceded it he will proceed Jesus will by incarnate action beyond the prophecies of Matthew 24 and 25 to establish in time the ground of his ministry his message his proposition, what he has spoken. He will seal it in his own blood. He will show most magnificently the reality of what he has spoken, and the disciples' eyes will be opened most clearly when they see him hanging on the cross, when they see the power of God manifest in his resurrection, when they see him ascending to receive his kingdom in glory. And then, as the Holy Spirit seals the meaning of his message of the kingdom in their hearts with these events in mind, they go out, they go forward in bold proclamation, in the face of the harshest of persecution, and they witness as mere paupers, laymen, commoners, to kings and people in authority of the magnificent power and the glorious revelation of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ." This is the shared context of Matthew 24 and 2 Peter 2. As we go to the epistles, we see that this idea of gospel infrastructure is readily apparent in nearly every section, every individual epistle unit, if you will, that follows by way of explanation of the gospel. The apostles are commissioned to record, to interpret, and to apply the word of Christ. But as we see the structure of how they do so, we find things like this in Second Peter 1. Peter addresses the church by saying, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then you'll notice a shift to application and occasion. He says, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he gives them some practical counsel. In 1 Peter, we see the structure of the letter is very similar. He opens in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be received in the last time. So you see, even there, that the gospel undergirds, it provides the infrastructure for the future, the expectation, the hope, the eschatology, if you will, of Peter. Therefore, 2 Peter and the gospel of Matthew have a shared, a shared context of gospel infrastructure. Secondly, and more briefly, I want to point out to you that there is a shared authoritative appeal. Back in Matthew 25, we paused for some time last week on this phrase, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Backing up a little more, we see that Jesus has said as much by declarative introduction of this sermon when he says in verse 39 of chapter 23, for I tell you, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, a similar phrase. He says at the introduction, uh, in answer to the disciples' question, he sat on the Mount of Olives in verse 3. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And to lead many and they will lead many astray. He goes on to draw that distinction between those who would have a false claim of authority themselves, and setting themselves up as a Messiah, as an authority. Their ideas and their abilities really ought to be the reference point to, for uh, the uh, a truth and of what they have to say. And in Contradistinction to this, Jesus says that there is only one appeal to authority, and that is his word. He says, for I tell you, earlier he said in verse 36 of chapter 23, for truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In the first discourse, you'll remember the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. Time and again, Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto you. And at the close of that discourse, the first reactions the initial response of the people is awe and amazement because he spoke to them as one who had authority, not as their mere teachers, their scribes. And so here we have an authoritative appeal. In other words, what is the standard of authenticity that 2 Peter and Matthew refer to? It is the word of Christ. It is the declaration of from God himself through the mouth of his son. 2nd Peter 1:16 echoes this when it says when Peter says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Notice what Peter alludes to there was common, popular and perhaps uh, You know, what the itching ears of even this church perhaps would rather hear if they were not walking in the Spirit, cleverly devised myths. Let me tell you, saints, we live in a day of gross hypocrisy and apostasy and all kind of convoluted ideas about what the future holds and what the scriptures say and where is the basis of our certainty. I would encourage you to go to Scripture, let it interpret itself, be a diligent student of what is therein contained so that you are not susceptible to everything on the bookshelf that falls into the category of a cleverly devised myth. Look to the word of Jesus Christ and look to those who point to Jesus Christ. Look to those who with the heart of John the Baptist point past themselves and say, Behold the Lamb. This is what Jesus himself did when he declared that the words to listen to are his own. After all, heaven and earth and all its inhabitants and all our experience therein will pass away, but his words will always remain. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the field will be awash in the floods of judgment or the fires of the same, but Christ's word endures forever. And when we understand that he is the only word to be trusted, and his word is the last word, it is helpful in the context to help us understand what prophecy is all about. It is about him and his authority. Not, not some Johnny-come-lately expert, but the word of God which stands forever. First Peter chapter 16, I read to you, but if we continue in this same passage, he says, after explaining... By his first-hand account, eyewitness testimony, that he has seen the transfiguration of Christ, he says by superlative measure, in verse 19, we have something more sure. This is a man who saw with his own two eyes the transfigured, the glorified, a glimpse of the glorified Christ on the mountain with only two other privileged disciples. And he says, I'm not speaking to you from the authority of that experience, but I'm speaking to you on the authority of something far more profound. And what is it? Verse 19, it identifies it as the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the authoritative structure underneath context that must attend any accurate understanding of biblical prophecy, all of Scripture for that matter. Finally, under shared context, there is a similar or a parallel occasion. There is a pressing emergency among the hearers as Jesus declares His words, and Matthew 24, and there is a pressing emergency on the, uh, represented in the church that Peter writes to as well. You'll recall the events of Matthew 24 if you've heard the prior messages, but just to remind you, we read of these kinds of circumstances in verse 4. Jesus answered them See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray goes on to say that there will be more than just unsettling circumstances by way of claim, authority claim and messages, false truth claims. There will also be wars and uh, toppling of powers that be and so on. But for the, the context of this parallel, note that we're drawing our attention to today. Notice in verse 12, he again says that because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Prior to that, verse 11, he had said, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. He says in verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs, if possible, to to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then he goes on to describe the conditions they can expect uh, that are to be associated with the coming of the Lord in judgment. So this occasion of a dangerous sense of circumstances or context with which the, uh, Jesus delivers his message is echoed in 2 Peter. That is, under harsh trial, difficult circumstances, when people lose their bearings, when they're out of sorts and don't have those commonplace points of reference, they're often more susceptible to deceptive truths and to false promises. And this is true in the case of Peter as well, his hearers, as he writes in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that my departure, after my departure, you may be able at any time, to recall these things. Again, he wants to reinforce them against those cleverly devised myths. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be... Blasphemed. later he says in verse 12 these speaking of those scoffers false teachers are like irrational animals creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed blaspheming about matters uh, of which or uh, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction he speaks again of them when he says in the final chapter 3 verse 16 He's talking about Paul's writings and, that, and those who use them to twist them to their own advantage. There are some things in them, he admits, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A word of warning from the context of Jesus' admonition and Peter's admonition to the church that yet is applicable for us today is that among the vast horizon of those who claim to have a handle on the truth, there will be many deceivers. The occasion uh, in both cases of our text today was a pressing emergency. Jesus himself would soon go to the cross, and he is giving his important instructions before he ascends to the Father. He's getting on record everything the disciples need to live in light of the truth in his absence. Also, Peter himself feels this pressing sense that he indeed does not have much longer to live. So he's about to give the disciples the most important instructions, those that are under his charge, in these churches what they need to hear. After all, he says, since I know that putting off my body will be soon. So the opportunity window for the messengers are closing and also there's a great case of warning in the hearers. These conditions are ripe for deception. Let me ask you this question. Do we have such a pressing emergency among us today? Do we live in any chaotic circumstances where we can see and culture our experience a loss of the moorings and the burying posts and that which we kind of measured our experience in life by in the past? And those kind of socioeconomic, social, political, you know, circumstances such as we see them here or shaking foundations within the church of Jesus Christ, that is a pressing emergency. It's an occasion to dig even deeper into the scriptures. Let me tell you, saints, as far as I judge it, we do live in a time such as this. So it is imperative that we be not deceived. And the only way I know how the scriptures reveal for us to not be deceived is pay attention to the word of Christ to take his word as authoritative and to diligently seek out the scriptures, do these kind of comparative studies so that we may stand. Have you listened to Christian radio? There's a whole swath of proposition you can hear. Have you ever tuned in on a television station and heard all these who claim to speak for Christ, claim to be great exe- exegetes and expound his word? They claim to have heard a great revelation. Well, if, you, if it, all of it sounds good to you, that should be a red flag. If at all, if you kind of nod and smile and say amen, whenever you hear someone claim the name of Jesus Christ, that ought to be a red flag. Why? Because the scriptures tells, tells, uh, tell us to beware. A wolf looks like a sheep if he is wearing sheep's clothing. And the only way to discern who he really is is to see what's underneath the facade. Be diligent to understand and study the scriptures. I cannot do it for you. I must do it for myself, I have a responsibility to model it in part as far as I know how, and the Spirit gives the ability, you must, believer, you must dig deeply into the scriptures, pay close attention to those truths that bind the corpus of Christ's word together, then you will stand. But if you do not, if you take it for granted, if you only hear, 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 and never double check, if you're tempted to say amen at everything that sounds good across the ether, I have no assurance for you that you will stand in a day of great difficulty. So it's a little exhortation for us today. The word of God will not make sense without realizing with a little deeper, closer attention, spirit-enabled study its truths, and also we will not stand in the day of adversity without the same. With that shared context in view between these two passages, let me move to shared construct. Now let's explore the functional parallels between the two. First of all, definition and use of this term that I was referring to called event oracle. Historical circumstances which function as indispensable of knowledge declared by proxy divine in origin. Turn to 2 Peter 2 in our main parallel text this morning. Notice that after if statements, there are four uh, individual circumstances to which the author refers, or I should say three here. One of them is sort of two-part. You could add perhaps a fourth by way of Balaam in verse 15. I submit to you, these are something like event oracles to which Peter himself refers to help his hearers understand what God is doing among them and what they can expect in the near future. Verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. And here's the second one. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought through a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here's the third. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and here's the fourth, perhaps a subset of Sodom and Gomorrah, if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So he's building his case here. This is where attention needs to be paid to the word of God. It's not always you know, a Twitterable statement of 140 characters. Sometimes there's a deep and profound extended argument. This is one of them. So he's building his case. He was tormenting, speaking again of Lot, his righteous soul over their lawless deeds when he saw and heard then. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There's an appeal to God's work in history that is infallibly recorded in these scriptures right here to give us confidence in the day where the enemy would like to shake our faith because wickedness abounds for a season. And that is the truth of what is being shared with us. He is pointing to event oracles in the past, that is circumstances of God's divine intervention that prove he will do it again. If God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell, will he not do the same for those who commit sin unrepentantly and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion in verse 10. If he did not spare the ancient world in the days of Noah when after 120 years of enduring, we surmise, of enduring the mockery of his neighbors finally was vindicated, finally was justified when the waters lifted that gigantic vessel with the seed of the new world on board and carried it through the waters of judgment. In those 120 years, Noah could rest in the promise of God, and we can rest in the promise of God demonstrated in the case of Noah. That event oracle tells us there is salvation in our ark, Jesus Christ, and there is judgment for the ungodly. And so it is in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, it becomes paradigmatic for judgment by fire. So it is in the case of Lot, who is pulled out at the last moment by the power of God's grace alone. And so we see then this use of this means of speaking and understanding prophecy, this sort of a construct. It's a functional parallel, I submit to you, that we see in Matthew 24 as well. Where do we see it? Well, turning back to our text, Jesus himself says as much and refers to one of these same circumstances when he says in verse 37, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. The first example in Second Peter was one of the non-elect angels. I get that term, the negation of First Timothy 5.21, which refers to the elect angels, those that obediently served to this day before the throne of God's glory. But there were the non-elect angels that were not spared judgment. We read of these in Revelation, we see of their fate, and it says in Second Peter 4, if God did not spare the angels when they sinned but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept in judgment, can we not expect, he goes on to say in so many words, the same for all the unrighteous? After all, you think an angel would stand against God, have more chances of standing against God if it could be said than a mere man. However, such is not the case. God has power over celestial creatures as well as human ones. And that is the point. And then uh, adding another example of this event, or, of event oracle, let's uh, touch on in verse six, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distra- distressed by the sexual conduct of the wicked, and of course he goes on to say, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. But notice that phrase in this reference to Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's exactly the concept there. The things that happened before were recorded sovereignly to show what will happen in the future. Jesus alludes to this when he prophesies the destruction of the old temple order. And I submit to you that these things still stand in our day as event oracles now. As surely as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their lifestyle of, among other things, Uh, murderous behavior, complete sexual lawlessness, so in our day when we begin to codify by statute complete moral perversion, there is a time that we will face fiery judgment. That God will not uh, suffer forever a people to continue to try to justify by their phony laws and by their fake policies complete and utter rebellion against his word and law by saying at Republican national conventions, I'm proud to be a homosexual business owner. It goes on to say in the scriptures that those who have had a handle on the truth are deserving of even greater judgment, and in the case of this political party, I am not afraid to call them out by name. Such is the case if they do not repent. Do not align yourself with anything that would redefine the terms of righteousness apart from the word of God because it's like living oblivious to the truth around you as if you were lot. God's grace may come in the last moment and yank you out, but it is dangerous to live in Sodom. It is dangerous to live in Gomorrah just before the fire and brimstone falls. Where can you find safety? You can't find it in a political party. I'm here to tell you they have no authority In fact, they only have any standing insofar as they represent the Word of God. You can't find safety there. You can't assure our future there. You have to go to the Scriptures. You have to have your mind shaped by the declarative authority therein contained by the Word of Christ. These are dangerous times we live in. Look to the event oracles of what has gone before and you will have strength to stand. Jude goes on to make this case, citing these same two specific examples. Right before Revelation, we have that one chapter book. In Jude, verses 6 and 7, listen to what he says. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Does this not sound exactly like what Peter said to non-elect angels as I referred to them, who were judged for their rebellion against God being an event oracle for judgment in the future. And then notice the second citation here of a historical example in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. That's it. That's the event oracle. Sodom and Gomorrah and these angels who are cast into the fiery pit they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment by eternal fire. The Gospels pick up on this. In Matthew 11, 20 through 24, Jesus refers to destruction, utter destruction. In 24, 41 through 46, we see even reference to fallen angels. At the end of 25, we see the destruction of fire again following that judgment oracle. So there is a shared construct here. There's a reference to God's works before to establish an understanding of the prophecy he declares and an expectation in the future and a strong mooring post to hitch your soul to in a day of uncertainty. The other example to draw to your attention a little bit more briefly since we've covered it some already is the global flood. Second uh, Peter hits on this. Peter in his second epistle hits on this uh, at least twice as I recall. We read the first mention But he goes on in even more explicit terms to use this example of the flood that went before to underscore expectations for the future here in chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water. The creation of the world, that is to say, was an event oracle. The world was created out of water. They failed to take into account this fact of the nature of God and his acts in history. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Verse 6. And that by means of these, that is that water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. To what does he refer? The cataclysmic event, the judgment in Noah's day, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So here he is again. He's using this construct. What God has done before is a pattern for his interaction in history future and in history now. This global flood shares with us by historical circumstances something that God will do, a pattern of his interaction, his character on display. It contains within it indispensable decreed of knowledge for our confidence, for our standing, for our expectation, for our boldness to share the gospel. It was declared by proxy in these events, but it came from God, divine in origin. So in closing this morning, as we see some of these shared constructs, let's consider that interpretation question. Is Matthew 24 and 25 referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? Well, my, I would venture the answer yes. Is Matthew 24 and 25 referring to events that we can expect in the future? I would venture the answer yes. Why? Because A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem and the old temple order, when the hypocrisy of the people and the leaders had doubled down to such a degree that they were obtuse and oblivious and blind and deaf to the preaching of the Messiah himself, were so deserving of judgment that it came. And so it is today. God will come again. The Lord will come again in judgment. And A.D. 70, Noah's flood, the creation of the world, Sodom and Gomorrah, the fallen angels, all serve as event oracles for what to expect if we do not place our entire faith and hope in Jesus Christ. The only means of salvation, the hand leading us out of Sodom, the ark carrying us through the waters of judgment, he is the one and the only one. And so these passages have eternal relevance to the day in which they were written and to our time this day. New Testament eschatology is more clear when we realize this much. That much, if not most, of you know, the first order, if you will, fulfillment takes place. That is, New Testament apocalyptic language and prophecy refers in its first fulfillment the penultimate instance, if you will, to the destruction of the Old Covenant order and first age finality at A.D. 70. Yet at the same time, these events stand as event oracles, signaling final judgment and the ultimate return of Christ at His second coming. The last verse I'll lead you to today is in Second Peter 3.11. I want to leave us with more application than hopefully a better understanding of biblical prophecy. Because Peter does this. He leaves his hearers or he instructs his hearers with an application related directly to these events in 2 Peter 3, 11, He says, "...since all these are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness?" waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And these weighty, powerful, profound, prophetic texts of Scripture, when we hear them proclaimed and their relevance to our day, Since all these things are true, since all forms of wickedness will thus be dissolved, the question that Peter raises is, what sort of people ought you to be? And he answers it in the same sentence. People who live lives of holiness and godliness, and in so doing, we wait patiently for the Lord, and we hasten the day of His coming by being good stewards of the gospel. And that will be the theme of our message next week as we continue in Matthew 24. Waiting and hastening through godliness and through holiness. This is our charge. How can we do this? Paying attention to the scriptures, trusting that we become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, but first and foremost, and by way of priority, surrendering to him in the very first place. Just like Peter and the Gospel of Matthew assume, none of this will make sense and none of this is yours if you have not been born again. So I would plead with you today, if you do not have the assurance of faith, that you would trust yourself in repentance to the life-saving arms of Jesus Christ who bled and died for you. Let us close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would seal this time of the hearing of your word with your promised Holy Spirit, applying it to our souls, equipping us, Lord, for the application that the apostle instructs, for godliness, for holiness, for diligent waiting, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord by testifying to your power and to your glory, your authority to judge and your mercy that is ready to save all who bow before your throne, confess their sins and trust Jesus Christ with their future. I pray that we would be found faithful doing this on the final day, as soon or as far away as it may be, you know, We have our marching orders. Let us be faithful. And if we are, we promise we will say it is because of the spirit that works in us to will and to do of your good pleasure so that you get all the glory as we march forward to our eternal reward. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.